Jerry Anderson's finest 26 hours is his first live-action television series, UFO. But the finest of those 26 hours is one particular instalment, Time Lash. Time Lash, not to be confused by the dire Doctor Who story of the same name, was written by Terence Feely and directed by Cyril Frankel, and was the 24th of the 26 episodes of UFO produced in total, and the 7th in its second production block. UFO is a masterful series, one I've raved about before, but a show I still feel doesn't get the acclaim and adoration it deserves. Sure, amongst the Anderson faithful, it's widely regarded as a classic. But to the general populace, it's the one with the purple wigs, like it's an episode of Friends. Like many shows, UFO is a batshit confection of utterly ridiculous scenarios, mixed with some spicy lunacy, for good measure, and baked in crazy town. And that's why it's great. The central premise is just mind-boggling. In the late 1960s, the military learns of an alien encroachment upon our fur planet. For reasons unknown, these aliens are invading, nicking people, and then buggering off. The opening episode, Identified, establishes that the aliens are harvesting our organs for some reason, and what's needed is a way to combat them. To this end, the UN band together to create Shadow, the Supreme Headquarters Alien Defence Organisation, a top-secret organisation manned by the best people available to stand up to the alien threat. Air Force Commander Ed Straker is chosen to lead Shadow, and it takes ten years to build and set up, meaning the series proper takes place in the then-futuristic 1980. Now, this top-secret organisation not only feels the need to make its operatives wear cute little badges with the logo on them, but it is hidden, wait for it, under a film studio. Yes, it's not enough for this to be an offshoot of the military in some capacity. No, 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 no. Shadow disguises itself as a working film studio that Straker runs. No wonder the poor guy's always so tired. He has two full-time jobs. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, why the film studio cover? Does that make any sense? Well, no, lovely listener, it makes not a lick of sense. A film studio, by definition, attracts attention. Actors work there, some big-name actors. Projects such as films and television need publicity, so the press are routinely there as well. The whole point of Shadow is to be top secret, so as to not attract undue attention and alarm the populace. So to put it under a place that, by definition, attracts more than the usual amount of attention seems counterintuitive. Does no one wonder who... All those people who come to work every day are, you then just disappear? Does no one wonder what that nice Keith Ford does all day? What about that good-looking girl, Aisha? She's not someone who wouldn't attract attention. What department does she work in again? Shadow HQ is located, as I say, underneath a film studio, Harlington Straker. Who Harlington was is never explained, but the real reason for being under film studio is so that the producers could film around the lot with impunity. 
UFO was filmed at Boreham Wood and later Pinewood, and the exterior for Harlington Straker can also be seen as the exterior of Holby City Hospital in the BBC medical drama Casualty. Of course, this is only the tip of the iceberg with regards to the crazy setup. Shadow has three lines of defence against the aliens. The first is Moonbase, with three fighter jets named Interceptors, whose aim is to stop the UFO before it even enters Earth's atmosphere. It's never established what the Moonbase uses as its cover, because there are other Moonbases nearby, as established in other episodes. So it's common practice in the future of UFO to have a Moonbase. We know, for example, that the Russians definitely have a Moonbase. However, another problem is that a moon base would be visible to people with a telescope, or a good pair of binoculars, as would the interceptors. The constant destruction of the UFOs in an explosive manner would also presumably attract attention, not least by those other moon bases I mentioned. How Shadow kept this a secret was... glossed over. The second line of defence was a fleet of submarines called Skydiver. These are easier to hand wave in the top secret department as they are under the sea a lot. Even then, the front of the sub is another fighter jet, designed to shoot down any UFO threat that manages to evade the interceptors. Skydiver's job is made doubly difficult by the fact that each Moonbase interceptor is only armed with one missile each, so if the aliens send four UFOs, Moonbase is buggered. No pressure on the Skydiver crews, then. The third line of defence is a fleet of armoured tanks called Mobiles. These unsubtle and not terribly inconspicuous vehicles are seen barging through woods and shooting UFOs above houses and around populated areas. So once again, how Shadow manages to remain incognito is something that requires not so much a suspension of disbelief, rather you take your suspension of leaf outside and shoot it through the head. Of course, none of this really matters. What matters is that UFO oozes late 60s cool. The design of the UFO itself fits very much into the mould of what was contemporary in the late 1960s, i.e. it's essentially a spinning top. Damn if it didn't look good though. Likewise, the little green men paradigm of the times was reflected in the skin colour of the aliens, explained as a dye which the alien skin is subjected to due to the liquid breathing apparatus in their helmets. We never really learned a lot about the aliens, and information about them was doled out very sparsely over the series. The overall look of the show, though, is pretty damn cool. Rather than just put people in contemporary fashions, Sylvia Anderson gave everybody futuristic designs. The men all wore futuristic three-piece suits with long coats and high collars, trousers and a vest top. The women were still in miniskirts, but flowing dresses were the order of the day when shadow personnel were off duty. This gives the show a weird not quite dated but not quite contemporary feel that makes it a kitschy delight nowadays. The other vessels were also magnificent designs and all of them made for wonderful dinky toys as Anderson had his eye on the merchandise prize long before George Lucas. The feel of the show is interesting as well. It looks bright and colourful but there's a cruel streak to UFO, a darkness learning under the sunny exterior. TV schedulers ultimately had problems with the show, wondering what time slot suited it best, probably because of Anderson's track record as a maker of children's puppet shows. I can only assume these schedulers didn't actually watch UFO. The first five minutes of the first episode has somebody get shot in the face and blood is everywhere. This may have given them a clue as to the show's intended audience. If UFO has a flaw, it's that the main characters in the series were not given a lot of development. 
In fact, only one character, series lead Ed Straker, played by Ed Bishop, was in every episode. Straker was a hard-ass, almost thoroughly unlikable at times, completely devoted to his work and expecting the same dedication from his staff. Episodes where Straker softened, even for a moment, were always welcome, as they allowed the audience into Straker's world and thus to sympathise with him. Bishop was excellent in the title role, a thankless job that saw him compared to a Thunderbird's puppet on more than one occasion. This was unfortunate, as Straker is probably the most human character in the Anderson canon. As the series was shot in two blocks, the cast of the first 17 episodes is quite different to the cast in the last nine episodes. However, as the screening schedule was all over the place, this meant that the cast could be quite different from one week to the next. For the first batch of filming, George Sewell was Straker's right-hand man and longtime friend Alec Freeman. Of all the characters in the show, Freeman has aged the worst. Always smoking and drinking at work, as well as leching over the admittedly very fetching female shadow operatives, Freeman was at his best when he and Straker didn't see eye to eye, or when he was Straker's conscience. Sewell was not available while filming on UFO Recommenced for the back nine, having been contracted to appear in the new ITV cop drama Special Branch, and he was replaced rather cannily with Wanda Ventham as Colonel Virginia Lake. Now, the one thing everyone knows about Wanda Ventham is that she's Benedict Cumberbatch's mum. So let's get that out the way, should we? Wanda Ventham is Benedict Cumberbatch's mum. Bringing Colonel Lake back was a canny decision. Ventham had appeared in a cameo appearance back in episode one, so having her return as the same character was a lovely touch. Also, interestingly, it seems that all the producers did in the first few episodes was give Lake Freeman's lines. So there's no acknowledgement from Straker that Lake is even a woman, and therefore any less capable of doing the job. As such, she's one of the best examples of a good female character in Anderson's work. Lake features heavily in Time Lash, arguably UFO's finest hour. As I've mentioned, UFO is the kind of show I refer to as chocolate-coated barbed wire, in that it looks sunny and bright, but take a bite and you'll get hurt. The opening titles to UFO don't really sell the show for what it is. It needs a more ominous and brooding title sequence. The end credit music, which I'll play later, fits the show much better than the opening theme, excellent though that is. It's still Barry Gray though, and it's still for a Jerry Anderson show, so it's some of his finest work. As with all Anderson opening titles, it's fast-paced, slickly edited, and a joy to watch. Have a listen. Open is spectacular. 
clocking in at a whopping seven minutes long, we see a normal day at Shadow HQ when in bursts a dishevelled and crazed Commander Straker, who promptly starts trashing the joint. Computers are ripped out of their sockets, reel-to-reel tape decks are pulled from the wall, sparks fly, and Straker refuses to listen to reason, as Paul Foster and numerous other Shadow operatives try to stop him. He then legs it through his office and out into the film set, taking us on a backlot tour of Pinewood circa 1970. He passes film crews, ruins takes, punches out a poor guy just to check the time and runs past a macabre scene of a dead body riddled with bullet holes driving round and round in a buggy. He checks other scenes, looking both confused and purposeful, a bravura performance from Ed Bishop. He gets to a rooftop where it looks like Virginia Lake is dead on the floor and it is here that shadow security personnel catch up to him. Pinning Straker down, they discover in his pocket a syringe and an unknown drug before we cut to credits. Now this is how you open a show. What the hell is going on? Why is Straker doing all this stuff? What's he looking for? Is he a drug-addled lunatic? Also of note, every location he goes to here pays off later. Although if you're watching this for the first time, you won't realise it. So Timelash does reward repeat viewing. Whether you're a long-time viewer or a newbie, though, this is a gripping opening. The direction by Cyril Frankel is superb. The cold open closes on Straker's eyes, crazed and wild, supporting the idea that he's lost it. The episode proper opens on Straker's eyes, this time sad and haunted. As a regular viewer, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that Straker has cracked up. He's in a very stressful job, one that has already cost him a marriage and the life of his son. The blue eye pawn is off the charts in this episode, with both Bishop and Ventham having very expressive, wide and crystal clear light blue eyes. Straker, it turns out, is now in hospital, and Dr Jackson has diagnosed him as being in shock. With little to go on, Paul Foster and General Henderson try to piece together what has occurred. Colonel Lake remembers nothing. With no other recourse, Dr Jackson injects Straker with an experimental drug to open his mind. The episode then cuts to flashback. Straker recalls picking up Colonel Lake at the airport to brief her on an upcoming meeting with Henderson. If we know Straker from other episodes, this is making sure Lake knows exactly what to say to get Henderson off their backs, as Straker has done this kind of thing before. We're then treated to a beautiful sequence, mixing live action with model work, as Straker and Lake spot a UFO, which turns away from its destination to attack them. Some of the shots of the UFO are wobbly, but the scene where the car is fired upon is breathtakingly brilliant. They couldn't do a scene like this now and have it look any better than this. Straker is pissed off, which was Straker's main mood. How the hell did a UFO get past Moonbase? You just know the Moonbase personnel were in for a severe bollocking at the end of this episode. They are scanned by the UFO, but presumably unharmed, as they proceed to Harlington Straker, where they are suddenly greeted by instantaneous daylight and a film studio where everyone is frozen in time. The practical effects here are marvellous. Nails hover in mid-air, just about to be hit by the hammer. Sawdust and cigarette smoke hang in the air. Stools are suspended in flight after being tossed from one person to another, and birds are likewise caught mid-fly. Straker even hits the stool with a 2 by 4 to no effect. This is a taut episode, both in its planning and execution. The characters are just in the dark as we are, and the filmmakers wring every bit of tension out of these two opening acts. As Straker and Lake explore Shadow HQ, one operative moves his fingers. 
It's Colonel Lake who figures out that there's some kind of time freeze thing happening, and Straker extrapolates. Then it wasn't frozen when whatever this thing that's happened happened, which means it can be interacted with, which means that elevators that were not in use can work, guns that were not being used at the time can also be used, etc, etc, etc. They also start feeling the effects of the time lag themselves, slowing down and becoming sluggish. The only way to counteract this is to shoot themselves up with speed. Now, UFO had a number of episodes confined to a late night slot due to more adult content, and this episode was one of them. Although I saw it in my ITV region on a Saturday afternoon, so maybe they didn't get the memo. The scenes of Straker and Lake injecting themselves with speed to keep going is pretty heady and probably scared the TV sensors of 1971, even though we don't actually see needles enter flesh or anything like that. Writer Terence Feely said that this was all accidental and in no way a commentary on turning up and dropping out. He needed a way for Straker and Lake to be outside time and this was simply the easiest way of doing it within the confines of the story he was telling. Lake figures out that the UFO has gotten through thanks to this time freeze and they have some time before a larger invasion force arrives. It's here that they see Ronald Allen as radar operative Turner running around Shadow XQ. And the episode then transitions into an action-adventure piece, but never loses its thoughtful approach. Turner then explains what's going on. Have you any idea what they've done here, Straker? They've taken a millionth of a second of our time and frozen it. This whole thing is taking place in a millionth of a second, Straker. That's why Moonbase doesn't know anything's wrong. Compared to them, we're midgets, Straker. All of us. out to commercials here is masterful, going straight to the break on Turner's laugh rather than on a musical sting. Straker then starts taunting Turner, teasing him about the qualities needed to be a leader. The motivation for the action is very believable. Turner is jealous, jealous of Straker. Turner wants what Straker has without actually earning it or being willing to pay the price. As Straker himself tells Lake, I made my choice a long time ago. Straker finds that he must shoot up again, as they both find themselves slowing down, although he refuses to give Lake another shot. They have spotted the first UFO of the alien vanguard, and Straker gets a rocket launcher to bring it down, but Turner steals the launch key after knocking Lake out. Straker must pursue Turner to retrieve the key as the UFO approaches. However, Turner, being a cocky asshole, gives Straker the key alright, but to his own downfall. You're too late, Straker! Give me the key, Turner. Come and get it, Commander. <laughs> You're out of your league, Straker. The nearer they come, the more power they transmit to me. I can play time like a trumpet now. Ha 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 
primitive idiot. You can only see me where I've just been, or where I'm going to be. Not where I am, unless I want you to. You're Lex Straker! <laughs> Straker shoots him dead and takes the key. He then arms the rocket launcher and blows the UFO away. Straker is extremely lucky that the UFO stays still for an extended period of time. After that, the episode returns to the beginning, as Jackson muses that Straker lived through an extended moment of time. We close, as we opened, on Straker's eyes, finally falling asleep after his ordeal. Time Lash is, for me, up there with the finest hour-long science fiction dramas ever made. It should be mentioned in the same breath as Yesterday's Enterprise, Far Beyond the Stars and The City on the Edge of Forever from Star Trek, Blink from Doctor Who, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and Time Enough at Last from Twilight Zone, 33 from Battlestar Galactica, Hush from Buffy, Blake from Blake 7 and Out of Gas from Firefly. That it isn't is a crime. Jerry Anderson never seems to get the respect he deserves, and this episode is UFO's best. The back nine episodes refined the show. Gone was some of the padding or discomfort of the early episodes. Sylvia Anderson's futuristic fashions have been toned down with more muted colours, and the teleplay is exceptionally well written and paced. Some regions even had this as the last ever episode, as opposed to the long sleep, which usually closes the run, and this puts a completely different ending on the show. Personally, I don't think this should be the last one. It's far too downbeat, even for UFO, but it's a great penultimate episode. Often overlooked, the acting here is really good. Ventham and Bishop have a nice chemistry, very different to his relationship with George Sewell in the first 17 shows, and their mutual respect for each other is clear. Lake even takes the piss out of Straker, which he simply laughs at, something he wouldn't tolerate from others under his command. When Turner jealously mentions that Straker is the one the girls all admire, Lake gives Straker a look as if to say, he's not wrong, which seems to embarrass the normally stoic and unflappable commander. Ronald Allen, best known as a voiceover artist and to people of my generation as the Barrett House guy, does a great deal with the role, even though he's only here from halfway through. His motivations are clear, his goals understandable and his actions plain. He's one of the best bad guys the show had. UFO was often quite sympathetic to the aliens, and we humans, as personified by Straker, were shown to be just as ruthless and single-minded in our objectives. But in later shows, we learn more about the aliens. They aren't just harvesting organs, but bodies as well. If Straker was obsessed, it was because he had to be. All of the effects show for this episode were new, with no stock footage used at all. Another example of the Anderson team's commitment to quality. The model of Straker's car, which is attacked by the UFO, was recycled from the episode ESP. The scene where Straker shoots a storage vehicle that is stocked with puppets could easily be seen as a commentary on Anderson's love-hate relationship with the marionettes that made his name, but it's more likely an accident. The backlot took in sets and props from The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, The Breaking of Bumbo, no, I've never heard of it either, Finders Keepers, Five Miles to Midnight, and Carry On Screaming, and was of enormous budgetary help to the episode, keeping the costs incredibly low. When Straker is seen leaving Shadow 8's queue at the beginning, he is genuinely running down the corridor that housed the UFO production offices. 
There are a few errors that eagle-eyed viewers will pick up on, especially in the HD transfers, such as obvious stunt doubles, and the continuity is off in places, with the dirt on Straker's clothes changing between shots. There's two slight production errors that interfere with the story, if you are an incredible pedant. The cover that's wafting in the breeze should be frozen, as it was moving when the time freeze took place, and Ed Bishop has early morning breath in one or two scenes, cluing us as to what time of day it is in certain shots. However, as I'm not a pedant, well, not much anyway, I'll not mention them. It's also not made clear if Straker and Lake were accidentally left out of time, or if this was intentional. After all, how could Turner get his revenge on Straker if Straker didn't even know it was happening? Turner strikes me as a raving egotist with little in the way of self-awareness. He really does think he's as good as Straker, whereas the episode continually shows otherwise, which makes me subscribe to the opinion that Straker being kept out of time was intentional, but Lake was accidental. This is supported in the actual episode when Turner tries to kill Lake, saying he has no problem offing her. The stuntmen used in this episode have a good pedigree as well, with Ronald Allen's stuntman Bob Simmons having been Sean Connery's double for his Bond films, and Colin Skeeping was Mark Hamill's double in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Whilst UFO's extensive recurring cast is present in this episode, with appearances by Michael Billington as Paul Foster, Grant Taylor as Henderson, Dolores Mantez as Nina Barry, Aisha Brough as Aisha, Norma Ronald as Miss Eland, and Vladik Shebal as Dr. Jackson, the episode belongs to Ed Bishop and Wanda Ventham, both of whom rise to the challenge. Would that we'd have gotten a second series of UFO, with all the improvements the show had made over these 26 shows in full swing. Would it have gotten trippier or more metaphysical? The series certainly got more during and innovative as it went along, and I don't believe I'm alone in thinking that these last nine episodes are amongst the finest things Anderson ever produced. As John Greenleaf Whittier once said, for all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest of these it might have been. Maggie, what are you writing? Oh, hi, John. I'm writing down ideas for a new promo for Married with Comics. I like our old promo. But the clips from the old promo are from an episode that's never even aired. It's lazy podcasting. But we're incredibly lazy podcasters. And the only thing you've written down are the words, come up with ideas for the new promo. Well, I guess we'll just have to fall back on plan B, then. Uh, B for blackmail professional podcast guest Tim Price into doing a Mephisto bit? Exactly. Greetings, internerds! It is I, Mephisto, ruler of the netherworld and prince of all evil. I am taking this time for my evil machinations to issue a warning to everyone in podcast land. 
Avoid Married with Comics with John and Maggie at all costs. They're a despicably lovable pair of newlyweds who talk about comic books and other areas of geekdom with enthusiasm and joy that is anathema to me. Ugh. Just listen to them as they paraphrase panels. For those who don't have the issue, Thor's expression is pretty much that of anyone who reads this issue pretty once much. you're done with it. Yeah. You, you there, everyone's sick of this and sick of you. I am pointing where you need to go, which is away from here and away from this issue. <laughs> and I do love that first panel. It's pretty neat. I like it. Batman going swoosh. Explain exposition. I have no idea what's happening. In this one, it looks like Superman's tearing a bridge down. Why is he destroying a bridge? I think this is part of his eventual reign of terror. Is and oh, maybe. Thing, the bridge. <laughs> Screw that. <laughs> and comment on all their favorite comics. Everything about this issue is just gollywhackers. <laughs> He's causing huge amounts of property damage, which, by the way, at least when the Fantastic Four does it, they pay the city back. Superman's not going to pay anybody back for this. Married with Comics, available directly at marriedwcomics.libson.com on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for Married with Comics Podcast. We've got everything you need. Right, let's do some emailing, shall we? It's that dead blasted Spider-Man, see? It's from Nathaniel Wayne. Hello there, Andy. Hey there, Nathaniel. I continue to catch upon your stuff, basically focusing right now on what I actually know, which naturally brings me to your two most recent episodes talking about the amazing Spider-Man. Love hearing you talk about Lee's writing in such varied terms, acknowledging when he's spot on the ball and when he overindulges in his worst instincts. It's adoring, yet fur. And I expect nothing less from you. What follows is going to be pretty scattered, as I just jump in and as I have thoughts on what you brought up. I think one of the main things that kind of bugs me about these older Spidey stories is the fact that Peter's basically beating away the girls with a stick, and for the life of me I can't figure out why. I mean, I know the meta reason, it sets up more drama, but as a person what appeal does Peter have that all these women are tripping over each other for his attention? I think this is one of the reasons I've really taken to the version of MJ that appears in the Tom Holland starring Spider-Man films. She's a modern and easygoing version of cool, and there are shared scenes in the recently released Far From Home do a great job of peeling back the top layer to show that her insecurities aren't that far from Peter's own. She's just better at hiding them. My full review of the film is up on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, Natch. This makes their attraction feel more organic to me, whereas most of what's gone on in the comics and other films either feels forced or creepy. I'm sorry, but Tobey Maguire came across like a future stalker of Kirsten Dunst in some of those scenes. It's quite amusing for me to hear about Kazar, since I actually recently read, I say read, more like suffered through, the original Kazar comic story. Technically not the same Kazar later adopted into Marvel's ongoing continuity for my contribution to A Marvelous Anniversary over on the Fire and Water Network. Nothing more to add, just don't read the original. It's, uh... Yeah, even grading it on the it's-of-its-time curve, it's still not good. 
You went on about the name of the club, but all I can think of was that it's funny to me how frivolous go-go dancing is made to look out most of the time. Speaking of someone who did a few go-go gigs when I was in New York, it's some of the most physically exhausting work I've ever done in the whole realm of modelling, acting, performance, etc. Think about the last time you went to an event with dancing. Maybe it's at a wedding, maybe it's a school dance, I don't know your social life. And then think about how many times you sat out on a song to catch your breath or rehydrate, or because you weren't feeling the music. Now imagine hours of dancing, usually up on a box with actual little room to move, never letting your exhaustion become evident with no say in the music, and the people on the floor trying to hit on you or ply you with alcohol. Okay, this was a total and burly connected tangent, but it's kind of a pet peeve, I think. Yeah, my daughter's a dancer. She's currently in college doing dance. Uh, I know how exhausting dancing is. I know how fit those people have to be. So um, obviously I'd never really thought about it in terms of the comics, but yeah, if, if MJ is a professional dancer, which is what she's portrayed as in the late 1960s comic books, then she was in remarkably good shape. No wonder Gwen felt threatened. Also, side note, I listened to your episode on Miles Morales as well, but since I really don't know the character worth a damn outside of the Spider-Verse, the new reigning king of the best Spider-Man film and easily on the shortlist for best superhero film of all time, I don't have that much to say. It's a shame that he didn't seem to have as strong an identity of his own. I do have to wonder the fact that Bendis cut his teeth on 90s comics if he was just overly sensitive to that era's trend of rebooting, replacing characters with more extreme variants that supposedly add more personality. But it was always awful, and he just overcorrected when his time came to replace an icon. I can't back that up, but I have to wonder. I think that'll do. I dread how much of the feedback section I'm going to end up eating up, but I suppose that's your problem to sort out. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Um, it's a nice problem to have, Nathaniel. Uh, always um, nice to have too much email than not enough. Uh, with regards to what you see, yeah, if I have a problem with Raimi's Spider-Man movies, which the f I generally love, even the third one, I think has merit. It is. It's Tobey Maguire and, and Kirsten Dunst. If anything, that... That film is an adaptation of the 90s cartoon rather than being an adaptation of the comic books. So the 90s cartoon has no Gwen Stacy at all. It's all about Murray Jane. And I think that cartoon cemented in people's minds Murray Jane is Peter Parker's Lois Lane. Which, to people of my vintage, Peter Parker had loads of girlfriends before Murray Jane. Not before he met Murray Jane, but before they started going steady. And he had lots of girlfriends after they broke up and before they rushed into their marriage. So, to me, it always feels a bit disingenuous to have Murray Jane be his lowest. I don't mind them growing up and growing together and then ultimately marrying, as depicted in Tom DeFalco's Spider-Girl. I have no issues with that whatsoever. As I've mentioned before, it's not so much that I'm not a fan of the marriage, it's I'm not a fan of how they did it. It's that it was an edict from Jim Shooter because Stan was doing it in the newspaper strip. You're getting them married in the comic. It was rushed into production. They weren't even dating at the time they were in the comic. Even the annual itself, where they get married, doesn't work. Because David Michelini plotted that annual that Murray Jane was going to stand him up at the altar. And Shooter was, no, they have to get married. So the, the story in and of itself doesn't work because it's leading to a conclusion that doesn't happen. You read that comic... Knowing that that's how Michelini intended that story to go, and the story just doesn't have a decent, satisfying conclusion. Whereas the DeFalco run establishes Gwen and Peter as a much more stable, realistic, and viable married couple. And I've said this before my Spider Man head canon goes from volume one, the gathering of the fire, the end of volume one of Amazing Spider Man, straight through to Tom Falco's Spider Girl. Everything else is Spider Verse. 
especially the Dan Slot stuff, where Peter is, you know, I think one of the things I miss about the Tom DeFalco stuff, it was nice when Peter Parker was written by an adult, as opposed to the arrested adult Dan Slot seems to write Peter as. And I get a little bit bored of that. Anyway, thank you for emailing in. Uh, Greatest American Heroine by Jason Trenner. Hello, Jason. Greetings, Anna. I honestly can't remember the Greatest American Hero show from back when. Interesting that it got a chance to return, but that didn't work out. Do have to agree that now you get YouTubers and Twitter whining for about a week or two before something else came along. I swear it's like the people who do that look for things to whine about. And I'm sure if you ask them a month later, they probably won't without a search engine remember what you were talking about. I'm convinced that's true. I'm convinced it's all about Twitter likes and retweets and hits and all that bullshit. I can't do that. I can't just ramble on and on and on about stuff I don't like or negativity and it's just fuck off. If I don't like something, I just won't watch it. It's as simple as that. I also have to agree with something from the email on people bringing up those three letters or the three words of turning out of their argument. Is that SJW? There are other words too involving, like soy. I can't understand how soy got soiled by those fools as soy is usable in a lot of things and frankly a very versatile food stuff. Those people tend not to be versatile. The only person I tend to see using soy boy is, um, is a former Green Lantern artist who uh, used to be really, really good. And I was a fan of his art, and having seen him on Twitter, I think he's an utter dickhead. So I don't really treat anything he says as serious, because, you know. Uh, Jason continues, on to something that's actually worth something. I have to once more say I really hope you cover the Doctor Who novel The Indestructible Man, because covering Jerry Anderson pastiches along with the second Doctor and his companions, I am sure will get plenty of discussion out of you. Not sure how much you'd enjoy the novel, but I'm sure it'll be an interesting experience. Well, Jason and I have discussed this. Uh, over over Facebook, that's a very expensive book. For whatever reason, I cannot find a cheap copy of the Doctor Who novel, The Indestructible Man. You know, I, I went on eBay. Jason suggested it a couple of times. I thought, oh, all right, let's give it a go. Um, but I've been on eBay a couple of times, and I cannot find it for like dirt cheap. Now I consider old Star Trek and old Doctor Who novels. They shouldn't be going for more than two pound fifty at the most. So that's how cheap I am. But I think this was running into the into the £20 bracket. If I see it in like a used bookshop, I'll definitely pick it up. Um, if somebody wants to send it me, I will definitely cover it on the show. So there you go. The gauntlet's thrown down. Uh, thank you, Jason. Thank you for emailing in. I will cover one more tonight before I have to go off and do other things. Uh, toxic Fandoms, D-U-M-B-S, is from Daniel Doherty. Hello, Andy. Hello, Daniel. Nice to hear from you, mate. Kudos on your latest episode about the greatest American heroine. Even though it was purely coincidental, it dovetailed nicely into the subject of Nathaniel Wayne's email about entitled whiny fanboys ruining online discussions everywhere. This is part of a larger issue that's been sticking in my craw for some time now. I'm a big believer in constructive criticism and being able to express your honest opinions openly, but it's becoming increasingly harder to do so on account of these blasted idiots who keep clobbing up comment section with the... Daniel wrote, insert whiny gibberish there, which is probably that. Actual legitimate criticism is being overshadowed by these troglodytes whining about social justice warriors, forced diversity, feminist agendas and other everything bullshit. 
These entitled pricks think everything must be tailor-made exclusively for them, and they hate anything that doesn't line up 100% with their narrow-minded, ass-backwards worldview. As a result, I'm now a lot more hesitant to say anything critical or remotely negative about entertainment in general. Otherwise, I might get lumped in with the rest of the insert whiny gibberish trolls. That's, I've heard that a lot. It's, you know, there are people who want to criticise stuff but don't want to get lumped in with the morons. One of the things, I may as well say it now because it, it went down moderately well. I was wary of covering the Miles Morales Bendis books because I had a negative reaction to them. And you know that on both, let's be honest, both sides, somebody would have accused me of being racist because I don't just because I don't like Miles Morales' comic books. Nobody did, which is nice because I like to think that I've demonstrated on this show. I'm quite open-minded about a lot of things. But also, I think a lot of the, the pushback didn't come my way because A, I've got a great audience, and B, I liked Miles an awful lot in Into the Spider-Verse. And all of my problems with the character as per Bendis' writing were fixed in the film. So it was nice that I didn't get any pushback on that. But I was bracing myself for people saying stuff like that. And then the other side of the coin, I was bracing myself for people saying I don't like Miles Morales because he's just he's token diversity. My issues with Miles Morales in the comics were that he was a carbon copy of Peter Parker... And he had no agency of himself. He was an adjunct to Peter. He only became interesting when he was interacting with Peter's supporting cast. And that's not how you do it. That's not how you bring uh, a character of colour or a character of a different ethnicity or whatever into the comics. You've got to give them their own background and personality. Because Miles would not have the same background and experiences as Peter at all. It's one of the things when people talk about, well, Clark Kent could be black. You could do that story by all means. It'd probably make for an interesting read. But the Clark Kent who was black growing up in the south of America would not have the same experiences as Clark Kent, the Caucasian, at all. And if you don't pay attention to that in your story, you are just doing it for forced diversity and you are just doing it for the sake of it. If you're going to do it, you would have to do it properly. And I'd read that story because that would probably be quite interesting. Daniel continues, Hell, I rarely make snarky comments anymore because some people seem to think that's because I dislike something that they like. I'm somehow attacking them personally. And that's the other extreme that really irritates me, the obsession with hyper-positivity. Now, I know the positivity for positivity's sake have the hearts in the right place in trying to stamp out overtly hateful comments on social media, but demonising any and all criticism is going a little too far. How are we going to be able to change things for the better if we're not allowed to be critical? Only focusing on the positive side of things doesn't fix anything. The only thing worse is when content creators lash out at the fans on social media. Not just the SJW has hats, but anyone who expresses a contrarian opinion about their work. The attitude I get from some of these writers, directors, producers, and even entire entertainment companies is like, this is the story we're going to tell you. You're going to read it or watch it and like it. And if you don't like it, you're obviously a troll who needs to shut up and go away. That's a completely unfair blanket statement that lumps all the fans who actually express their criticism and concerns in a respectful manner in with the trolls that had ab absolutely nothing to do with. It only serves to inflame the situation and turns everyone away, including those who otherwise would have supported your work. And I'm sorry if you're that thin-skinned about the slightest criticisms, then maybe you shouldn't be on social media. 
Yeah, I agree with that as well. I've said this before. I think an awful lot of The Last Jedi backlash is they engaged with the more negative side of the fandom. The uh, the cup with whiny fanboy tears on it and all that stuff. That's funny. But at the same time, I think Ryan Johnson... Ryan Johnson's engagement with those people, maybe he shouldn't have done that. I've said this before. If I were a creative person, I wouldn't be on social media at all. But if I was, it would just be to plug my stuff. And maybe Ryan's standard response to everything should have been, well, if the film didn't work for you, that's a shame. I made the film I wanted to make. Disney allowed me to make the film I wanted to make, which I'm very appreciative of. But there's another Star Wars film coming out in less than six months. Hopefully there'll be more to your taste. And then hopefully with all three of the sequel trilogy movies out, you'll be able to see, you know, how it all slots together. And I think if he'd done that and just done that same reply to everybody, people would have left him alone and they would have moved on to other things. As it as it is, The Last Jedi is still uh, a hot topic on Twitter, but you know... People still hate the... One of my things about The Last Jedi, I've just got to say this, is how many people have suddenly come out as the prequels are brilliant and George Lucas could do no wrong. Which makes me laugh uproariously. I can count on one hand the number of people, including myself and my son Michael, who were openly positive about the prequels at the time the prequels were coming out. One hand. Right? And now, suddenly, everybody loves the prequels because George did them. No, you fucking chased George off. You're the people that made him sell because he just got fed up of dealing with your George Lucas raped my childhood bullshit. So, you know, it's it's probably not going to go away until the last Star Wars movie is out and then 20 years down the line, hopefully the kids that grew up with the sequel trilogy will start explaining what they love about them. You know, I think they're fine. I don't, I've said this before, they don't have any of the inherent backstory that George peppered into the sequel and prequel trilogy. You know, none of the characters have anything going for them outside of those movies. You can't do stories about what Rey was up to prior to The Force Awakens because she's a non-entity. She was scavenging on Jakku, that's that's it. You can't do stories about Finn prior to the force awakens he was just a mindless stormtrooper whereas in the original star wars the backstory that obi-wan gave you you could give us backstory stories about obi-wan backstory about princess leia was all there you could give us adventures with princess leia from prior to star wars han solo you could give us adventures with him prior to star wars darth vader and the empire the only member of the original star was that really an interesting backstory is luke it's not really a lot that you can write up about growing up on tatooine but even though there's some stuff that you could do the prequel trilogy i've said this before the prequel trilogy characters i think are richer and have much more depth than the original trilogy i think there's so much you can do with the jedi order and yoda and obi-wan and anakin's relationship they got six seven seasons out of the clone wars with you know the introduction of Ahsoka Tano and the deepening of all the other characters all that wouldn't have been possible if that wasn't there in the original text which I think it is I think there's an awful lot of depth to the prequel trilogy that a lot of people either ignore or don't want to see but you know whatever I don't want to live in a world, continues Daniel, where I cannot express my real honest opinions without being vilified for having a contrarian point of view. But unless things change, that seems to be the direction we're heading in. The SGW fanboys need to grow the fuck up and learn to express their criticism in a concise, respectful manner like adults. And the hyper-positivity crowd seriously need to get butt hurt every single time someone says something critical about something they like. 
that's enough from me. I think I've ranted enough to fill two email sacks. Until next time, cheers. Sincerely, Dan Doherty. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate you emailing in. I also hope that if we've done one thing in this email section from the Doctor Who show onwards, it should show that I have no problem with your differing opinions. Email me respectfully and address them. It's as simple as that. Anyway, I'll be back next time with more Spider-Man. Spidey's coming back, everybody. Uh, so there may be a bit of a longer gap between that one because those episodes take a lot of time. Uh, he, he mail me. Again, he mail, she mail. They mail. You know, we're all inclusive here. Uh, email me at heykidcomics at virginmedia.com if you have something to say. And we'll be back next time. And remember, it's all going to be okay. Even when the new Star Wars film comes out. See you soon. Bye-bye.